In the heat of the moment, you're not just keeping it calm, you're keeping it cool too. With an ice cold cold brew, and not just any cold brew, but one that's slow steeped and mixed with brown sugar and molasses flavor. With a cold foam infused with brown sugar coolness and a cinnamon sugar sprinkle on top. That's keeping it calm, cool, and cold brewed. With Dunkin's new brown sugar cream cold brew, America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Terms apply. Progressive presents Married to Your Home. I'm disgusting. Oh, house, don't say that. You could live someplace so much better than me. That's not true. Oh, yeah? Look at these uneven stairs. Gross. House, you know I don't care. Ugh, and the squeaky door hinge. I think it's cute. No matter how much you already love your house, you'll love it more knowing you could save big bundling your home and auto with Progressive. Coverage from Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and third-party insurers. Bundle discount not available in all states or situations. Welcome to another episode of This Week in History. This week we're going to be covering the 11th of January from 1879. Now for British uh, historians or British enthusiasts with history, um, this is the Anglo-Zulu War. So, to uh, explain that a little bit, the Zulus were a nation um, in what is modern day South Africa. Um what we would describe as native um, very inexperienced in warfare um, and very ill-equipped for a invasion of a European empire so um, at this time the British Empire was expanding uh, Victorian Britain was um, expanding throughout the colonies um, making a bigger and better name for Great Britain um, it's uh, looking back on it now it's a very different time period to uh, that at the time Britain's colonies were seen as um, the strength of Britain and how Britain had evolved and where they were going as a nation looking back on it now um, there are a lot of negative sides to this um, and this war in particular will certainly highlight some of the negative sides to the British Empire um, and the British colonies, especially in South Africa. Um, these are effects that are still being seen today in South Africa. Um, South Africa is still one of the worst crime rate countries in the world. Um, there are still persecutions of blacks and whites in South Africa. Um, it's a very racist area, um, and it I hopefully uh, it will sort of come out of that but South Africa as a general general rule has sort of been given this stigma um, and I'm, I 
not to sort of annoy any South Africans. I'm sure um, that isn't the case um, throughout the vast majority of it. But unfortunately, that is a stigma that has sort of stuck with South Africa um, ever since colonial days of Britain. So, um, like I said, obviously, at this time, Britain was slowly expanding and Zululand um, was a section just to the the, um, the east of South Africa. Um, it was almost the only area in, in South Africa that was causing the British any any sort of harm um, or any real threat to Britain at this time. Obviously, with Britain being um, an advanced military power and having a lot more um, modern weaponry, um, crushing an, an army um, of so-called inferior um, warriors shouldn't have been too much of an issue um, Britain at this time were not looking for bloodshed um, there was um, many demands that Britain made with uh, the Zulu king and I do apologise for any mispronunciations um, I've got it down as Quechueo, um the Zulu king um, who turned around and said no we're not going to accept your demands now in all fairness hadn't looked at the demands that were set out by the British Empire I agree with him uh, he shouldn't have accepted them um, you know these were natives of the country and they've been there for generations thousands of years possibly um, and then all of a sudden someone turns up and says you know we don't like the way you live um, we want you to abandon your traditions. Uh, we want you to get rid of your army. Uh, we want you to accept our Christian mercenaries, and we you want we want you to um, learn our Christian ways. And you know that's that's how it's going to be. You know, and uh, I think in reality, I, I think in this situation, I can't imagine anyone would turn around and go, "Yeah, all right then." Um, you know, they 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 weren't uh, they weren't going to allow the British to just walk in and take over um you know fair play to them um so at the time the uh, general in um south africa uh, was lord chelmsford now if you ever get to look at a picture of lord chelmsford he has a wonderful mobius mustache which is uh, for those of you that don't know a mobius is the one that uh, starts under your nose goes all the way around to your sideburns but it doesn't have a beard it's wonderful uh, not something i could pull off um but very very British, very upper class, um, as as was the time for many um, soldiers, uh, many generals at this time were appointed to their ranks due to the fact that they were um, lords or um, of, of higher class system. Um, this obviously caused um, a lot of issues. Um, a lot of their decision making was not necessarily one of a battle-hardened general. They were people who had been given that position due to their title rather than their um, their standing in the British Army. Um, luckily, that's not the case anymore. Our, our um, armed forces um, are promoted because of how good they are, not because of their bloodline. Um, so, obviously, Lord Chelmsford, looking to make a name for himself... Um, declared war on Zululand in, on the 11th of January 1879 now 
like I said, a lot of these soldiers at this, a lot of these generals at this time were not battle-hardened generals. Um, this was not necessarily the case for Lord Chelmsford. He was an experienced soldier. Um, he fought in the Crimean War, um, and he also fought in the Indian Rebellion of 1857. Now, um, due to this, obviously, he, he had a little bit more experience than, than most generals. Um, he was actually appointed Major General in March of 1877, um, and was um, appointed commander of the South African forces um, that year as well. So um, his decision to start a war um, was primarily his own decision um, and unfortunately for him it was not a decision that was backed by the British government or at least not at first. Um, Benjamin Disraeli, the British Prime Minister, um, openly criticised it to start with um, but then pretty much had to fall in line um, and, and just say, you know, sort of agree with it um, because if he hadn't, um, he would have shown a lot of weakness and shown that he, he basically didn't have control of his own generals um, overseas so um, he pretty much ended up having to agree that uh, the war was necessary um, and this sort of angered a lot of people um, it angered the general public in Britain um, and it actually would have been one of the main reasons why he lost the the, the, the following election um, and was not prime minister after this, um, so he had to back um, a, an invasion of a land that he didn't actually agree with. Um, now, for the British, um, they actually sort of entered into Zululand and they were almost unopposed for roughly a week or so. Um, and January the 22nd um, was where they hit their first major encounter at the Battle of Islanwana. So many British won't know about this battle. They will be much more familiar with the Battle of Rourke's Drift. Uh, if you are a historian or you're into your, your British history, you'll be very, very aware of the Battle of Rourke's Drift, which is one that I will cover in a minute. The Battle of Islamwana was actually fought earlier in the day. So it was actually fought on the same day as the Battle of Rourke's Drift. Now the reason you don't hear about this battle um, is because the British lost. Now this is a, a classic case of history being written by the victors and not by the, the losers. You know, this is a battle that was you know, pivotal in the war. It was one of the major battles of the war. Um, but because it was a resounding defeat for the British, um, it wasn't cut. It's not very well covered. Um, it wasn't covered very well back at home, um, and there were a lot of positive spins put on it to make it seem less um, derogatory, I suppose, to the British people. Um, however, if for uh, the Zulu natives um, and the Zulu warriors, this was the biggest. Um, and the best battle that had ever happened for them. So, um, so basically, what what happened in this battle was um, the British forces uh, arrived at Islamwana um, with a force of over four thousand men. So, Chelmsford, Lord Chelmsford, obviously believing that um, you know they were they were more than a match, more superior than the Zulu warriors. Um, you know, with their their rifles, their, um, their, at the time they had two Gatling guns, um, which for those of you that don't know were um, modern equivalent to modern day machine guns, uh, and they only had two because they worked on a slightly different system to the trigger, they were more of a, a wind up gun, 
um, but they, they you know there was only two of them at the time um, they had artillery they had cavalry um, and coming up against a, a a force that you know only carried spears and cowhide shields I think they, they did get a little bit complacent um, and this complacency was one of the main reasons why um, you know they the overconfidence and the complacency was one of the the main reasons that led to their defeat at this battle. Um, now, the problem that the British faced in this battle was um, they sent out scouts. Now, obviously, looking throughout history, any battles and things like that, that general armies did send out scouts just to have a look at the surroundings um, and to report back with any sightings of of the the arm the um, the enemy. Uh, at this point the uh, scouts went out they came back and they said we've seen the army over over the, the hill um, Chelmsford got his army together um, and he he left Islam- Islamwana now when he left Islamwana he left uh, around 1700 men there so he did take the major chunk of the army away um, with this overconfidence that the British had, they they didn't fortify their location. They they left it as a general camp. Um, there was no walls built. There was no um, security. It was literally just a a camp. Um, now, obviously, what the British weren't expecting was the decoy that the Zulus had put out. So this uh, things that the, the scouts had seen was a decoy from the main force. So as soon as Chelmsford split the forces down the middle, taking the army out of the situation, the Zulus' main force was able to approach from behind the British army um, and sort of hit a devastating blow. Um, so the 17 men and two artillery guns, that was it. That's all he left, 1,700 men and two artillery guns to defend the camp. Obviously, at the time the soldiers that were left at the camp were were not even aware of the approaching army of the Zulus now to put it into perspective the Zulu army at this time that was approaching had over 20,000 men in it now even though they were under equipped 20,000 men against 1700 the British were vastly outnumbered um, the Zulu army um, employed a tactic that was called the Horns of the Buffalo. Well, basically, what they would do is, as they approached the British army, um, they split their forces. So one group went round the right, one round the left, and the main group stayed in the middle. And they tried to encircle the British. It's very similar to to many um, tactics that you'll see um, in sort of modern modern armies. Um, they encircled the enemy um, and then attacked from all sides so once they'd obviously approached the British army the um, the British were vastly outnumbered um, and it was a bit of a bit of a bloodbath um, obviously the British being able to shoot up to 500 yards gave them a little bit of time to to sort something out but they they weren't in a position to um to deal with a, a force that size and they certainly weren't in a position to to know what they were doing in regards to that um now one of the uh 
the things that was has always been said about the the British Army is uh, they didn't they didn't flee a battlefield. Now, I can't imagine I wouldn't have fleed a battlefield. I can honestly tell you, if I can see twenty thousand men running towards me, I think the uh, you realise at, at a certain point on that battlefield that you weren't getting away from it. I think I would have fled. Um, some of them did flee. Um, a lot of soldiers did flee. Um, a lot of them were cut down as they fled. Um, they were the Zulus were, you know, it was their land. They knew their land. They knew their terrain. Um, and the British were even taught um, to treat the Zulus as cavalry. You know, these these foot soldiers. They were that quick. The the British were told, you know, you treat them like cavalry. You don't treat them like soldiers. Um, because they're that fast, um, and and it, it proved, you know, they they did give them that, and and the Zulus they massacred the the British. Um, one thing that is is very noteworthy um, in regards to this battle is um, a lot of the men who did escape were actually officers. Now, that makes may sound um, as if the it's the officers that have have fled and left the um, the. The soldiers to fight. Well, that was not actually the case. Um, the Zulus were actually given instructions before the battle to ignore civilians um, and only attack the redcoats. So, if you've ever seen any TV shows that depicts the old-style British Army uniform, um, the British Army was redcoats um, with the white belts across um, and the white hats in South Africa. So, um, anyone with the the red coats. Um, was attacked anybody who didn't wear red was almost left alone um, and during this time frame the officers wore blue so a lot of the officers actually managed to escape because the uh, the Zulus wouldn't attack them um, unless they were attacked first so that they, they did get away um, probably one of the few advantages of being an officer on that day um, as I can't imagine there was very many when you realised that you probably weren't getting off that battlefield now this um, obviously was a major blow to the British Army. Um, they actually lost around 1,300 men of the 1,700 men that stood their ground that day. So they lost nearly 95% of their, their forces on that day. Um, and obviously this was a huge blow to Lord Chelmsford. Now Chelmsford was obviously not very well received back at home. Um, and there were many calls for him to leave um, and to be brought back to Britain and um, obviously ask questions and and so on and so forth in regards to that um, the advantage Lord Chelmsford had was he was actually a very very good friend of Queen Victoria um, Queen Victoria backed him very very highly um, and he was allowed to stay out there um, even though this defeat had been obviously one of the biggest in British British history. Um, so, what made this um, slightly more um, barbaric, say, to the British, um, was that after the Battle um, of Islamwana, the Zulu warriors they went around the battlefield and they carved open the chest and the stomach of all the soldiers that were laid dead or wounded on the floor. Now. The reason for this, um, to us as Europeans and Western world, we would see this as extremely barbaric and extremely unnecessary um, and very disrespectful, almost, to mutilate a dead body. However, 
it actually showed a lot of respect. The Zulu belief was that once you died, the only way your spirit could leave your body was if your body was carved open um, and the spirit was able to leave the body. So actually what we saw as a very barbaric thing and a very disrespectful thing was actually the Zulus showing a lot of respect to the British who, let's be honest, hadn't shown them any um, by invading their land. So, you know, it it does go to show a little bit of... um, you know, you, you see a lot in history of they were described as savages, and and really that's not the attitude of a savage. You know, um, they they left the civilians alone purposely um, in a battle, um, and then they they showed them respect by allowing their spirits to leave their body after the battle. So obviously, it does raise some questions as to who really was the barbaric ones on that day who really were the savages was it the British who had invaded a land that wasn't theirs or was it these guys who were trying to show a bit of respect and and I think that's where history has lost a lot of its um, credibility and um, it's it's caused you know a lot of changes in history and a lot of changes to the way people think uh, another thing uh, if, if anyone's interested in it um, on that day as well um, this, it was said that the sky went black um, so around 2.30 um, on that day there was actually a solar eclipse so to any of you who like that side of things um, I think that would have been a little bit more scary if you were a British soldier to see all those people coming running towards you knowing you're going to die and then all of a sudden the sun disappears and you don't really know why um, I think that would have scared quite a lot of people so like I said, <clears throat> later that day was the Battle of Rourke's Drift. Now, this is where a lot of people are aware of um, the Battle of Rourke's Drift. A lot of people know about this battle, um, mainly due to the film. Um, and like I said, a lot of history is written by the victors. So um, the British managed to leave out the Battle of Islamwana quite, uh, quite well and focused on the Battle of Rourke's Drift. So, the Battle of Rourke's Drift was um, essentially the Zulu army that had just defeated the British. Um, a lot of them were quite high on that success, um, and they ran to the garrison on the border. Now, the, the garrison on the border was Rourke's Drift. Um, the British had around thirteen hundred, well, sorry, about one hundred and thirty men um, stationed at this this uh, garrison. Um, and uh, around 30, 20 to 30 men who had actually returned from the Battle of Islam, Islamwana um, earlier that day. Um, so obviously word had got around this garrison as, as to what had happened um, and a force of a, probably about 155 to 156 men um, were stationed at the garrison on, on that time. Um, then for them to turn around and see an army of around four thousand, three and a half to four thousand Zulus approaching the garrison, um, I think probably scared the life out of them. Um, the difference between the Battle of Islamwana and the Battle of Rourke's Drift was the the garrison was well fortified. Um, the garrison had high walls. Um, the British had um, more ammunition as it was a garrison. Um, and they had the ability to look over um, and 
sort of managed to fight a little bit better they could see over the battlefield as opposed to being in the middle of the battlefield um, and again they were able to shoot from about 500 yards away about 420 meters so they managed to inflict quite a lot of damage on the Zulus before they even got there and when they did get there the walls were quite high and very hard for the Zulus to penetrate so that obviously that gave the the British a little bit more of an advantage um, at the end of the, the Battle of Rourke's Drift there was only 17 British killed so out of 150 odd men only 17 were killed um, the following day um, when the you know the dawn had broken that the British went out onto the battlefield um, and apparently counted 351 dead Zulu bodies on the ground and roughly 500 that were wounded or captured um, so there was around around 850 casualties um, or deaths from that battle alone so when you consider um, a an army of 150 men managed to fend off an army of nearly 4,000 men for <clears throat> a good few hours it's why that has sort of been regimented into British history of, of, of such a great battle and such a great success for the British army um, there are sources that suggest that the British um, were just as savage as the the Zulus um, and due to the events at Islamwana um, the British ended up killing the 500 wounded or captured soldiers from the Zulu army um, there are sources that say there was over 800 killed that day um, and there are sources that say these men were returned and any troublemakers were executed so I'm not sure personally I believe the there was 800 murdered that day um, my personal opinion um, from British history and, and knowing about our history um, and knowing a little bit about warfare um, I think if you had witnessed such savagery be committed on a battlefield where you never believed men would decimate dead bodies um, and then you captured the same men that had decimated your friend's body I can't imagine that uh, they would be allowing these people to walk away so from my personal opinion I believe that these 500 were uh, were killed um, afterwards but like I said there are evidence to support both stories so I'm not going to you know quote on that um, so basically they were the two main battles of the Zulu war now um, obviously the British at the end of the Zulu war did uh, did come out victorious um, the you know the superiority of the British army the superiority of our guns and our our ability to um, take on an inferior army um, I don't think it was ever in doubt that the British were going to conquer Zululand um, but I don't think necessarily it was uh, it was the right move um, once once they'd um, you know once they'd conquered the, the land they, they pretty much just divided it up and, and gave it away so it was almost a pointless war and again um, just shows how barbaric the British were really you know going into 
a place that wasn't theirs, killing lots and lots of people, and then just leaving like like it didn't happen. Um, and it's it's a bit of a again, it's a sensitive subject for for British history. I mean, I, I'm a I'm a huge fan of British history, huge fan of um, the colonies, and there are so so many good stories that come out of. Um, how the British um, expanded throughout the world, and how we changed the world for the better. And, and this is certainly not one of the cases where we changed the world for the better. You know, it's not it's not a good part of our history. I personally, I think it is a bit of a black mark on our history. Um, so obviously, the British ended up victorious. Now, um, a lot of this was down to Lord Chelmsford. So, although Lord Chelmsford did lose the Battle of Islamwana, um, and he was actually to be replaced by another lord called Lord Wolseley. So, um, this was mainly due to the public outcry from Lord Chelmsford. You know, people people really wanted to see some justice here. Um, you know, over a th- over a thousand men, British men, have been killed because this guy didn't fortify his location. He didn't um, deal with the threat properly, and he split the army in half. Um, he was also a notorious liar. When he actually got back to Britain, um, he was quoted saying that there was over sixty thousand Zulu warriors that attacked them. Now, one, he wasn't there because he'd run off, and two, um, there wasn't. There was twenty thousand. So he he was notorious for telling lies. Uh, he he also blamed um, one of the generals. Um, well, I say general, it was uh, Colonel Durnford who he blamed. Now, um, the quote is uh, him saying, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't make um, accusations of a man who can't defend himself. But um, the fact is, he did. You know, he, he blamed uh, Colonel Durnford for not doing his job properly. Um, and it turns out that actually he did do his job properly. And, and again, it was just a case of Lord Chelmsford blaming other people for things um, that he he actually had control over and that that to me caused um a lot of problems and, and I, I do think that this was one of the reasons why, why lord chelmsford once uh, he actually returned to britain um after the war um was never to um never to to, to be in the field again he, he was sort of not stripped of his military titles but um he never served again um so that that is a, a big issue now. Uh, luckily for for Chelmsford, he uh, he did he did refuse to uh, to give up. Um, and although the Zulus actually came to Chelmsford towards the end of the war um, and sort of said, you know, we're, we we want to we want to negotiate. We we would like to um, to try and you know resolve this without any more bloodshed. Um, Chelmsford knowing that he was going back to britain um to face the wrath of uh, the wrath of the british public um he refused he said no you know we're we're not going to we're not going to give up uh, we're not going to negotiate with you um we're going to defeat you um and that's what he did he, he they had another there was another battle at alundi and uh, the battle of alundi happened on the 4th of July 1879 um, and the British uh, essentially when, when they beat the, the Zulus at Olundi um, they captured the capital um, and they took over the the country and they took over the land um, and this 
defeat at Alundi um, happened just before Lord Chelmsford was to be replaced. This this was sort of his um, saving grace, so to speak. It was it was um, the event that kept him safe, almost. You know, it kept him from prosecution because at least when he returned to Britain, <clears throat> he had the ability to turn around and say, "Well, I won the war," um, and that that gave him sort of that little higher standpoint in in the British Army. And uh, didn't necessarily leave him with with a black mark on on his record, um, although the British public was still um, fuming over over the the Battle of Islamwana, um, the the propaganda from the from the British uh, media and the the uh, focus on the Battle of Rourke's Drift from the government is what caused um, the British to almost forget about Islamwana, and it has sort of been left throughout history as the battle that did sort of the, the unspoken battle. Um, you know, the British don't like to talk about their defeats at the best of times. They certainly don't like to talk about them when it um, it does make us look uh, quite bad, especially a battle that realistically should never have happened. It was um, a pointless war. It was a or it only lasted five months, but. Um, it was pointless, you know. We we gained the land and then we we didn't do anything with it. Um, we didn't need the land; they just took it. Um, and the the problem is, um, is later in the period, so sort of around the eighteen eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties, was the start of the Boer War. Now, the Boer War was between the British and the Dutch settlers in southern Africa. Um, and once the Zulus had been defeated, the Boers had that ability to challenge the British because the Zulus were their main threat um, so in reality you know it, it wasn't a war that the British needed and it, it, it eventually led to, to more bloodshed in further down the line so that was the story um, of the Anglo-Zulu War um, in 1879 so hopefully you guys learnt a little bit about that um, Hopefully you uh, you enjoyed that podcast. If there's a again, if there's anything you need to know, um, anything you want me to cover uh, in any future episodes, please let me know. Just drop me a line. Um, we're on Facebook um, at uh, this week in history. Um, just check that we're on there. Um, or if you want to email me, it's twihpod at gmail com. Just give us a drop us an email. Let me know what you thought of this week's episode. If there's anything you want to know, anything you want to get sorted, clarified on, just just ask. Um, again, if there's anything you want to hear in any future episodes, just let me know, and we'll always try and cover that for you. So just remember, everyone, everybody has history. Make yours great. Finding the right person for the job isn't easy. Just ask someone who hired a drama coach to be an IT guy. Yeah, I'm having trouble logging in. I'm not buying it. Say it again. This time with feeling. I can't log in? Come on, man. I want to feel your struggle. But if you've got an insurance question, you can always count on your local GEICO agent. They can bundle your policies, which could save you hundreds. Now, like your life depends on it. I can't log in. Yes, we'll make an actor out of you yet. For expert help with all your insurance needs, visit geico.com slash local today. When you love riding a motorcycle, you want to ride it everywhere, even getting a dental checkup. Mr. Carter, wouldn't you prefer the chair? I'm fine on my bike, Doc. Well, let me know if you feel any discomfort. 
And when you love saving money, you want to save even more. That's why GEICO makes it easy to bundle your motorcycle and car insurance. All done, Mr. Carter. Remember to brush, floss, and lubricate your drive chain regularly. Kickstart your savings with GEICO Motorcycle. Bundle and save on the things you love.